Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, October 11th, 2013. This week, episode 301 comes to you from Studio C. We're back in McKee's Rocks. I'm here with the Z-Man. Good to be here, Joe. Welcome. It's good to look across the table and see a friendly, smiling face. It's, it's wonderful. Easier. Great to be back together. Back at Studio D is our engineer, Jessica Lawson. Good afternoon, and everyone. Joining us for the roundup will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Today's segments include the IAQ radio trivia question, an interview with Mr. Chris Watson. We're going to have an update on the Colorado flood recovery today, and we're going to talk a lot of building science issues, too, with respect to flooding and recovery from flooding and crawl spaces and uh, a lot of interesting, uh, interesting information on those issues. And then, of course, we'll go to our roundup at the end. But before we get started, we have to thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, of course, you can stream the past shows right from our homepage. Just click on the episode number, and it'll start playing in about five seconds. Or you can use the Go To Show button. That will take you to the location where you can download previous shows, or you can get them from iTunes. We also have renewal credits available for ABIH, the IICRC, and the ACAC. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We'll get you out of quiz. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Here's the Z-Man with today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. competing fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each, each week. Submitting your answers easy. Either email us to 
cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. I'm sorry to report, thus far there has been no correct answer to last week's trivia question. The IQ trivia question for Friday, October 11, 2013, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their website, which is www.trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question. Old Testament Leviticus discusses mold and mildew, defiling dwellings and personal possessions. From where in the Old Testament does the following passage appear? On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Back to you, Joe. All right, Cliff. Today's guest is Mr. Chris Watson. Chris is a certified indoor environmental consultant with over 23 years in the restoration and remediation industry. He's a friend of the show and a friend of ours. We really are looking forward to today's show. He's currently the principal for Environmental Assessment Group. They specialize in construction, defect, moisture management, and litigation support with an emphasis on crawl space issues and indoor environments for chemically sensitive clients. He also serves as a principal for Signature Building Concepts, which focuses on reconstruction of faulty building envelopes. Chris is the inventor of the Dry Space Crawl Space System, the Filtered Air Wash System, FAWS and Huffers, HEPA Filtered Downdraft Air Wash Tables, and the Crawl Space Assessment Report. He's been a speaker at national IAQ conventions regarding special needs for special clients and also serves on the advisory board for the Colorado chapter of the Indoor Air Quality Association. He's recognized as an expert witness and has provided support for notable projects like the Denver International Airport, the state of Colorado, and numerous high-profile celebrities. We're looking forward to some music, I believe, for Chris. Through days and nights, the rain just fell. It raised and churned and turned to hell. And in that storm, it grew and then it charged. With the force behind a foot of rain, and down the hills, the terror came. The western town just kneeled and said a prayer. It may take our homes and dearly treasured things, but it won't break us down. Strength is what it brings. And come hell or high water. Well, very nice, Cliff. Nice choice. Hello, Chris. We have you on the line. You do, gentlemen. Excellent choice of music. And Colorado can certainly use some prayers. Uh, yeah, we uh, we. Really, when I, you know, got your email last week, I immediately thought, we've got to touch on that. We've got to have a show on this, Chris. Um, I'd like to start out, if you would, by giving us an idea of uh, how big of an area was affected by this flooding that we, you know, we've been seeing it on the news, although it kind of came and went pretty quick now that I think about it. Well, the immediate impact 
from the floods themselves coming down out of the mountains was approximately 2,000 square miles. That's a huge area. Huge area. How many, I mean, can you give us an idea of um, how many towns and cities are in that area? Just, uh, I know Boulder, Boulder's not, did Boulder get hit itself? Boulder, it's, uh, Boulder, Boulder County, um, Adams County, they were probably five different counties directly impacted. The number of cities in there is probably in the dozens. Uh, number of homes damaged, 17,000. Wow. It was a big, big event and not, didn't get a whole lot of coverage. Now, um, before we go into some specifics, I'd like to get an idea of what, what you have been doing um, I know you've got a long history. You've done remediation. You've done disaster restoration. You're a construction guy. You've done consulting. Worked with sensitive people. What were you? What are you doing right now with respect to the flood recovery? What What's um, What are your main areas of specialty now? Well, unfortunately, one of my main areas of specialty for the past eleven plus years has been dealing with chemically sensitive clients and exposures. What we're running into now is the tail end of what often happens in these situations where we get, we get the big franchises and, and folks coming from out of town to help, of course, with the immediate needs. But in the process of doing that, there's a lot of haphazard work that is done, uh, either incompletely or incorrectly. And we are now seeing the aftermath of that with improperly dried structures and otherwise. And we're getting a lot of occupant complaints now and requests for sampling because of occupant complaints and finding elevated fungal activity in significant numbers in virtually every single structure we're going into. So the aftermath is not just um, putting things back together, but how do we clean up now that we're dry or that we think we're dry? And the, 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 I'm getting at least a half a dozen to a dozen phone calls a day from new clients requesting sampling because they're concerned they've got a problem, they've got an odor, you know, they've got symptoms of exposure, and that's what we're dealing with right now. And that, that was my fear from the very beginning, was that if we didn't deal with this properly, we're going to have this problem. And it, it's, in my opinion, going to become an epidemic issue. And there are numerous doctors who are already commenting on that. They're seeing an increased influx in seasonal allergies that are ahead of schedule from anticipations of previous years. Um. In terms of improperly dried, you know, you talked about franchises coming in, and you know, these people, you know, typically franchise organizations are going to be pretty well trained. You know, they're not people that have a pickup truck. You know, for the most part, there's going to be a certain amount of training, and a lot of this training might be based upon. I would say the majority of the training is going to be based upon IICRC S500, and one of the challenges I think with the document is that insurance companies oftentimes limit the amount of equipment that can be put in or the amount of time that this equipment can be put in. And I'm just wondering whether um, sta you know, industry standards, which are meant to be beneficial, uh, might actually not prove beneficial in some of these situations. So I was just wondering if you could comment on that. Well, that's a very, very good point because you are correct. The insurance companies, they've been doing this a long time, and I, I, I spent 10 years in SoCal dealing with floods and fires and everything else and earthquakes, and the insurance companies are really good at minimizing um, their losses. And in doing so, they require atmospheric readings, and, and they've got people on staff that specifically evaluate uh, 
what you're doing and how you're doing it. Now, and the caveat to that, 90% of these people didn't have insurance coverage. Right. So they're paying out of pocket. In an effort for these uh, out-of-towners to come in and help us, which is very much appreciated, a lot of the work that was done was uh, very rushed because you had clients that were in an extreme state of emotional um, crises. Routinely, I found lack of containment, um, lots of other issues that we could go on for several episodes probably discussing that weren't addressed according to those documents. And faced with the situation that they had, I think that most of the companies did the best they were able to do within the constraints that they were limited by. And the fact that the clients were telling them up front, look, I don't have any insurance coverage. What can you do to help me? So I think there were some corners that were cut. I know there were some corners that were cut in an effort to help the client monetarily. But those efforts, I think, were seeing the consequences of them manifest in the fact that things were not done according to the guidelines outlined in the S-500 and S-520, specifically regarding containment. What? I'm curious. I assume first they came in, they did the makat. They they just you know tore out whatever was bad, um, threw it out in the street, wherever they were putting it, um, you know, and then they they did some kind of drying. And I'm curious, did you see uh, a lot of heat drying or variations on the on you know your typical just putting in air movers and dehumidifiers after you got as much of the liquid water out as possible, or do you have some unique kind of challenges with how your buildings are built that, that made those things, um, you know, kind of uh, not, as, not as useful, I guess. Excellent question, Joe, and I'll address the first part within drying. We did see uh, the big trucks that rolled into town brought semi-loads full of desiccants and dry air units for the schools, the libraries, the museums. Those were set up and did a phenomenal job of getting those dried properly. I haven't heard any backlash that we have in previous years of overdrying issues with regard to that. Now, if we move into the private residences, there were a lot of just air movers. And air movers, as you know, do not function a drying purpose unless we've got air exchange to stir up and exchange dry air for moisture-laden air. So there was some, some misconception about the use of fans with a lot of clients uh, there was a lot of refrigerant and LDR dehumidification going on, uh, in addition to the – you guys still with me? Yeah, we're there. We're... There you are. Sorry that the truck switched over to the Bluetooth. Can you hear me well here? You sound good. Okay. Um, so the direct answer on, on the, the large drying uh, heat and desiccant – those were used on, on the larger losses. The residential stuff was isolated to, uh, you know, LGRs and, you know, portable units. You know, one of the very unique situations building envelope-wise for us is the fact that building code requires a moisture barrier or a vapor barrier on our exterior walls. So behind the drywall, you've got a plastic 6 mil typical plastic sheet prior to framing and insulation. Now, when these guys come in with 
a, a, a uh, probe meter and they probe the drywall, which appears to be dry, they're not measuring through that drywall into the insulation behind, which is where the water came from typically, is from the outside in. So they're not measuring the moisture trap behind that vapor barrier. Drywall shows dry. Thermal imaging camera may even show dry because a, a thermal imaging camera's limitations are surface temperature anomalies. But if you're not using an impedance meter like some of the finer stuff, pieces of equipment that will read through materials, they're not picking up what's wet behind. Now clients are faced with, and I have not, by the way, found to date, over three weeks after the loss, a single structure that has been thoroughly dried. I'm curious, why do you have... Why does your code require that vapor barrier? And it's behind the drywall, right on top of the sides of the framing? Correct. So during building process, you'll frame it, then we'll insulate it, then the vapor barrier goes up, then the drywall. Why, and, why are they requiring that in your area? Well, I think it was initially required as a, a energy reduction benefit. With regard to air infiltration and things like that, it gets a little bit chilly here during the winter. Well, yeah, I thought maybe maybe you could tell folks a little bit about the uh, average temperatures or just a ballpark. Uh, you know, are you you considered a cold climate that far north in Colorado, I guess. We're we are more of a cold climate than a mixed climate, and when winter sets in, although Colorado gets about 360 days of sunshine a year, we'll have mornings that'll be in the 70s with an afternoon blizzard. Okay. Have you seen problems caused by this vapor barrier prior to this? I, I did. In fact, uh, the presentation that Carl Grimes and I did at the Unification Conference in Vegas a few years ago, we specifically addressed this issue. This was right after we had the five-foot record snowfall that year, and a contractor doing some uh, uh, construction work on a client's house simply laid a, a blue tarp from Home Depot across this roof, snow accumulated, melted, came down the wall. A, a local contractor with years of experience came in to dry it down, did a good job of drying the drywall, but didn't address the fact that this was a brick-clad structure, which had an exterior thermal ply on the framing, cellulose blown insulation in between, vapor barrier inside, and as the water ran down the wall, saturated that cellulose-based insulation. They dried the drywall, worked just fine with the protemeter. You could tell that it was the drywall was dry, but the moisture behind the wall was trapped for months. The client became uh, more and more ill with more and more complaints. Turned out we had a lot of off-gassing. There were, there were some bacterial issues and other exposure issues that left her quite, quite ill. And use of the proper equipment told me immediately there was trapped moisture three months after this loss in that wall cavity. So it does have its limitations, which can be very complicating and have drastic consequences if they're not reading properly through to the substrate behind that vapor barrier. And we're seeing a lot of that right now. Chris, knowing what you know about the unique characteristics of the construction, what could have been done differently to provide a beneficial effect in the limited amount of time that the drying equipment was there? I mean, is, is there something that you know I mean, that, that, that could have been utilized to, you know, to resolve this, 
I mean, is there is there a resolution? I guess. Well, well can, can I make a plug for a piece of equipment? Yeah, sure. sure. Tremex Survey Encounter. They're about seven hundred bucks, but they are uh, programmable for specific gravities of different materials, ranging from roofing to brick to plaster to drywall, over three hundred different species of wood to give us. Uh, and they're an, in, uh, they're an inductive uh, measuring device that will read through materials. They are expensive, and it's not typically feasible to put those on each flood truck and give each crew. How deep does it read? Well, it, it, it'll read, depending on the material, it can read a couple of inches deep or less. Also, the use of, you know, Tremex has got some other phenomenal equipment out, and using a slide hammer with insulated probes will let you probe through. We use those for, for checking EFIS and hard, hard coat stucco. We can probe through different materials, and that insulated probe will read at the tip so we can measure how deep we're reading. So we can use non-intrusive or intrusive measures to read into the material below. And if you're only testing that surface material, which is isolated by that vapor barrier membrane, you're not getting to the insulation behind there or the substrate. Um, and that, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. That, that's what's really um, the majority of what we're finding now is trapped moisture. Um, you know, Colorado is, is also known for a lot of eaves. And, you know, that that exterior insulation finish system, obviously, by definition, has exterior insulation. Well, if we get water behind that and it goes into the sheathing, then we've got insulation on the interior, then we've got a vapor barrier and then drywall. Lack of proper uh, use of equipment does not identify the moisture trapped in that sheathing and the moisture trapped in that insulation sandwiched between those two thermal, well, the exterior thermal ply and the interior membrane. Uh, there's another company, and I'm not sure whether or not you are or not familiar with their equipment. It's a German company, and it's called GANN, G-A-N-N. Are you familiar with, uh, with their, you know, um, moisture reading equipment? I am not. Check it out. Um, again, this was, last time I used it was years ago, but this technology was really the best I'd ever seen. Unfortunately, uh, I, I had a kit that was given to me as a gift. This thing probably cost several thousand dollars, and unfortunately it was all in German, <laughs> and I just didn't have the time to translate it, but uh, it's, check it out, G-A-N-N, and, uh, you know, I, I hope, just let me know what you think, because they, they've got some just slick technology. Chris, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, and, and I think maybe I understand why this is happening, but maybe others don't. Um, if we had flooding, and there was water behind the wall, why wasn't there water on the front side of the wall to the point where the drywall would have been swollen and wet and would have had to have been removed up at least, you know, a foot, maybe two feet, and then they would have seen that there was a vapor barrier, et cetera, behind there. Why wasn't the water getting to that point, or was it, and people just didn't bother, they tried to dry it without tearing out any drywall? Excellent question. There's three parts to that. Okay. The first part is... A lot of the folks that came in to help us out 
are from out of state and not familiar with our building practices. So to their credit, they're not aware of the way structures are put together. Secondly, most of the flooding occurred in basements. We have a lot of basements in Colorado. Okay. So we had water running over stem walls. So you got plate construction on top of that stem wall. Water was coming in over the top of the foundation. A lot of it obviously came through openings, windows, doors, things like that. But we had water coming into the wall over the top of the plate, running down the wall behind the insulation, behind the vapor barrier and through the insulation, manifesting at the bottom of the wall. And until these walls were opened up, it was dif difficult to ascertain. Was it water coming from a flood or water coming from groundwater, which was rising up through the slab? when it's a slab on great construction. So we had multiple sources of moisture. You know, the, the groundwater is essentially filtered compared to the surface water, which is considered Cat 3. Okay. And as it's coming in, uh, and again, bear in mind, 90% of these clients did not have insurance coverage. So the, the well-minded, well-intentioned contractors are trying to save them money by not doing flood cuts, by trying to ventilate or pull baseboard um, and dry down. And according to the meters they were using, they were showing surface temperature or surface measurements that were dry, but trapped moisture behind there, not knowing our construction methods. They weren't looking deeper because they weren't experienced with that. That's my assumption. Okay. Now, what about, um, I, I assume, I didn't realize you had that many basements, but I know you have crawl spaces as well. And I'm, I'm curious if the same thing happened there. The water went into the crawl space, so they didn't really think the, the first floor walls had been as affected, or like you say, they didn't need to be cut open. They weren't affected enough to be cut open. And that's entirely true. Colorado's known for two things. We're, we're number two in the nation for radon, and one of the probably number one for expansive soils with our bentonite. So when that clay gets wet, it swells up. That's why we have crawl spaces to keep slabs from moving. If we raise the floor, we don't have to worry about movement. Problem with crawl spaces is people don't think about them. It's like, it's like an attic. People don't think about what's in their attic. The complaints were coming from crawl spaces after news media was reporting on it, but people were noticing within a matter of days or a week or more, odors that weren't there before. Open up the crawl space and it's soaking wet. We've got 80 to 100% relative humidity, standing water or mud. Some of these projects were close to the floodplains and, and close to uh, uh, rivers and, and, and low-lying areas where they literally had water running through their crawl space. And these crawl spaces, are they like in um, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, you know, those, those areas, um, Virginia, even the coasts of uh, Pennsylvania, you know, New Jersey, etc. They're typically a dirt floor, and then the homes build up on top of that. Um, you've got a foundation, of course, and, and a, uh, a foundation and, and a footer. But then, you know, the home is basically built up above that. Are, are you talking about the same type of crawl space? Very, very similar. And bear in mind, EPA did a study 
a while back, and EPA states in their findings that approximately one-third of the air in your home comes from your crawl space, either by stack effect or by convection. So these are typically on a footer, but do you have to go down because of that uh, bentonite in the soil? How far do you have to go down with to, to get your footer in? The majority of what we've got aren't even footers. You've got what's called grade beam construction. So we've got helical piers that go down to bedrock. Then we have a grade beam which is supported between those. And to make matters even worse, the prolific use of sure void while they're pouring that grade beam, and the sure void is left in place, which is cardboard, as you know. What does cardboard do when it gets wet? It's a petri dish and inoculates the crawl space with mold. I see. Okay, so that's where the crawl spaces are different in that respect. Correct. So they don't have necessarily a, a, a footer. Uh, will they have a foundation wall also um, along with that uh, pylon, I guess, for lack of not knowing your description of it? Correct. From the piers, there'll be a grade beam that runs across that's, that's reinforced concrete okay. to support... That, that'll be your stem wall. But there are some projects where, depending on what the soil engineering reports come back at, where they do have a footer and a stem wall. I see. Okay. Very interesting. Um, tell you what, it's 1230, Chris. We're going to stop and thank our sponsors, and then we're just going to come right back to the interview here. We're not going to break for anything else. So hang in there with us, everybody. We're going to be taking a 90-second break here to thank our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with the second half of our interview on the flood recovery in Colorado with Chris Watson. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview with Chris Watson. We're talking Colorado flood recovery. Chris, while we were on the break, Cliff and I uh, had a question that we, we went over together. I'd like him to ask. Yeah, Chris, what we're thinking about is, you know, 
knowing what you know about this moisture barrier that, that's in place, would a wall drying system, you know, such as injected dry or, you know, one of the systems that injects, you know, that utilizes small holes uh, and can pressurize those walls, would, would that have been more effective than what some of these contractors did? Excellent question. If it's done early enough, obviously, we don't have a risk of any fungal impact or contamination. Um, they work well with typical fiberglass bat insulation. If we're trying to dry down cellulose blown or wet blown insulation or isonine, for example, absolutely ineffective. Yeah, you got to tear that out, I guess, huh? Correct. Yeah, packs down, so you'd be you'd lose your R value even if you didn't, even if you could dry it. And then there's not much Correct. air in there, I would assume. Right. So I guess. Correct. Right. Yeah. Well, okay. Interesting. All right. Now, what about the crawl spaces, Chris? Let's talk a little bit about that. How are those being handled? Uh, let's talk about the right way to handle that. How do you handle it when you have a crawl space that's been flooded for whatever reason in your area? Um, and and are you guys using more conditioned crawl space technology now? Uh, answer the last question. Conditioned space being using conditioned air only, not outside air, is an option. We've done thousands of crawl spaces with, with our dry space process, and when a properly engineered, properly installed ASTM-rated membrane is in place, there's virtually nothing to ventilate. We've eliminated soil gas emissions. We've eliminated the moisture. We've eliminated air infiltration. We've eliminated the radon issue. Uh, so the need for ventilation becomes moot in a typical crawl space. Now, in a flood-impacted crawl space, is it groundwater seeping up or is it water coming in over the top of the stem wall? We have to address, is it a Cat 3 or is it groundwater that can become a Cat 3? How do we treat it? Typically, it would be go in, assess where the water came from, identify how to stop it, if possible, identify what we need to do to address the impact to the occupants, do we need to apply some sort of suppressant, uh, biocide, or otherwise? And we use botanicals only, class 4 EPA regulated or registered uh, class 4 botanicals um, to suppress any pathogens from a CAT3 and to suppress possible fungal activity. Then, once we've got it extracted enough, we recommend the installation of our dry space process to seal that moisture below there. I've seen countless crawl spaces where contractors come in, put dehumidifiers in, and just imagine, guys, you've got a 1,000-square-foot crawl space or bigger that's had standing water that's now mud, and you want to dry the soil with refrigerant dehumidifiers. How long do you think those machines are going to have to run? A long time. And as soon as you remove that equipment, that soil is going to become resaturated with the high water tables. So the more effective method is... Take your readings, find out what you've got, how wet is the structure, the subfloor, the TJIs, the BCIs, the framing. Uh, do we need to dry that framing? In order to do that, we've got to seal the soil off with the installation of a dry space membrane. Then we can address drying the structure properly. So you, you install that before you do the actual drying or, or while you're doing drying, I guess. Correct. We, we get the, the environment workable enough for the employees to go in, 
and lay out a membrane and seal it so that we can now address just drying the structure. And in some cases, we have to put a sacrificial layer down because there's so much mud. We'll just go in and throw a six-layer poly down to at least suppress that larger area so that we're not drying all of that. We can focus the drying energy and efforts on the structure itself. Now, do you commonly see people insulate underneath the, you know, between the floor joists in your area in these crawl spaces? Well, we see a little bit of both. We see blanket insulation around foundation walls. It all depends on the, the design of their HVAC system. Is it a mechanical that has ducting through the floors or is it above? Is it radiant heat? Do they have a, a horizontal unit in the crawl space? We get a lot of those. They'll install horizontal HVACs in the crawl space. My typical recommendation is avoid all the thermal transfer, put the membrane in, insulate the floor. Okay. And, and we, we've had countless, well, every client we've ever done it for makes the same comment. They can now be in their basement without blankets. Now, Cliff, do you have another Well, um, I just wanted to get a clarification. I think I know the answer to this, but, you know, I agree wholeheartedly with this, um, you know, not trying to dry dirt. Uh, <laughs> it really doesn't make a lot of sense and that the money should be spent in you know, putting in some sort of, of, of membrane. Uh, what would you do if, if you felt that uh, there was sewage uh, on top of the soil? You know, the, you, know, you, know, you know, known sewage. You know, you know, you can see it, you can smell it, you know, fecal matter, toilet paper, uh, so on and so forth. And I guess there's a couple of ways to go. One is you can try to take it out. You know, the second is you can try to bioremediate it and cover it, you know, use some sort of uh, bug that will eat that, an en you know, a, a bacterial product or an enzyme product or whatever. But I think the audience would be interested in uh, what you would do in, in, in those situations. Well, that brings us to another topic, which would be how do we classify the water loss? And in our case, we had a lot of sewage spills, treatment plants that were overrun, outhouses that were overrun, livestock yards that were overrun. The neighbor's dog that uses his dog run out back every day was overrun by water and washed into structures. So that surface water is now a cat three, period. You may not see, smell, or visibly identify what you would consider a sewage loss per a backup or a broken line, but it's now considered a sewage loss because we've had runoff and wash off from all the other sources upstream from that surface water. So they all become a cat three if it's surface water. Then addressing that would be doing an extraction, doing some sort of suppression, protecting the workers, of course, but ultimately protecting the occupant and restoring the, the, the structure to you know, the bioaerosols, ACGIH uh, uh, statement of restoring the environment to a level of occupancy that does not create occupant complaints. So I, you know, I heard what you said, but I don't know that you really answered the question. Okay, I, I want to know what you're going to do specifically, you know, to the soil. I, I, I want to you know, go through that step by step. Gotcha. What the beauty of our, our dry space process is that it seals and encapsulates the soil. Correct. 
Okay. So, so you're going to leave that. that material in place. You may put some kind of uh, right. suppressant, essentially, on there. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think the challenge is if he is a bi if he is a biocide or an antimicrobial, what happens is it's, a, it's more effective on some of the organisms than it is on the other ones, and you're going to throw things out of balance. And maybe inactivated even to some uh, to, you know, to, you know, to a great degree. So I, I guess the situation is, and I, and I think I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I'm not. Uh, put, you know, trying to poke holes because I, I don't know that it makes sense to try to dry dirt. I think right. uh, you know, you're better off to or to spend a lot of money on on removing the dirt. I mean, it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. But yeah, I don't know, Chris. Do you? I guess there are. It depends on the client as well, and who's paying, and whether or not they're willing to have you go ahead and remove some of that soil. Well, I think some. I don't know that you can put the membrane if there's still a layer of water. You know, you have this. Bentonite soil, which I guess you could have puddling or something like that on top of uh, of the soil. I suspect, don't you have to? I mean, can you put the membrane over a puddle, or would you normally remove that water from the puddle in order to cover it with membrane? Well, we do want to extract all of the water that is humanly possible, and in this case, financially possible with the constraints that we've got in place with a, a lack of funding. Okay, all right. Well, but yes, yes, typically it would be remove the standing water, remove uh, what could be visible sewage if it were that that impacted. But it, again, it, it's to get it down to a workable surface for the for the workers to get a membrane in, so that we can now isolate what's going on below there and let it finish doing its natural process of ebb and flow and decay and things like that. So we isolate that soil from the living environment. Right. I would assume, too, in some cases where, for instance, you have puddling and, and it's because it wasn't graded properly, you might put some kind of a drainage, uh, a very simple drainage system in there, maybe even a sump to get some of that water out from underneath, especially when you have a lot of uh, uh, high water table issues. Do you ever do that, Chris, or are you just kind of on the barrier holding that back? No, we do a significant amount of interior perimeter French drains. I'll tell you, one of the, one of the bigger ones we did years ago was uh, Denver Broncos running back Terrell Davis, when he was retiring, sold this huge home at a 3,700-square-foot call space. The home inspector goes, does an inspection, gets back to the buyers, and tells them, I think you might have a moisture problem. Uh, try three feet of water. Was there a moisture problem? They actually, well, during construction on the top of the hill, during construction, they, they nicked the lens. So it's basically an artesian well pumping water up. We installed seven different sump pits, all gravity feeding to a main collection pit with a line all the way around the crawl space and branch lines throughout to collect the water. And to this very day, 10 years later, we're still pumping out an average of 250 to 300 gallons of water a day and going through new pumps for the new owners about every three years. Plus, we have the membrane. We have our membrane on top of that. I've got a text question from a listener here. I want to uh, thank Suzanne for listening as well. And uh, she's saying, asking if anything is being done uh, to help educate consumers now about this trap moisture issue. And, and are you seeing any public service announcements? You know, saying, hey, you know, make sure that you uh, address the potential for trap moisture in your wall cavities. Uh, public service announcements, no. I will tell you that one of my MCS clients from years ago is the one that's spearheading um, 
spreading information and knowledge, and I am continually on a daily basis answering her questions, which she's posting on her Yahoo group, which is a which is a, a mother's uh, group in Boulder, um, and we're educating them on what to look for, how to look for it, uh, and and how to be more cognizant of the possibilities of other issues. So, yes, we are doing our part. I, I put in thousands of dollars worth of free consulting with people, especially on the telephone, to walk them through. But public announcements, no, we're not getting any kind of coverage for anything like that. Well, you know, after Sandy, for instance, FEMA came out with a, a new document, for, and, and it kind of actually built on what we call the Pittsburgh Protocol, and I'm just curious if you're familiar with that protocol to start with, and then also if if you guys are using any of that FEMA documents, any of the FEMA documents that came out after Sandy. Answer the first question, Pittsburgh Protocol, not familiar with. Answer the second question, yes, FEMA has been here. Here's what FEMA has been telling people, and I have a copy of the letter. FEMA's been telling them to apply diluted bleach, and then to encapsulate, and they, they named the manufacturer of an antimicrobial coating they can pick up at Home Depot to rid them of their mold problem. They don't address uh, source removal. They don't address a whole lot of things other than bleach everything and then seal it, hmm. which, is, which, is, which may be in some cases better than nothing. In some cases, it may create more problems than what it, it, it solves. And I think that that and it's no disservice to FEMA. I just think that the documents that they're distributing are, are grossly outdated and do not really conform to any recent standards. I know the CDC retracted their comment probably five years ago to use bleach, and then they said that's not their recommended method now, but FEMA is still handing that out saying it is. You know, what's interesting, Chris, is that it, it seems to, you know, from experience, because I, I helped write one set of uh, FEMA documents, uh, you know, related to Katrina, but the, it, it seems that the government looks for consultants, puts together, spends this money, publishes this document every time there's another disaster, and the same organization and the same group, you know, FEMA, they've got multiple documents. They've got, and, and they've come way beyond that bleach document. Yeah. But, you know, I, I just, you know, it's typical, you know, with the government that they have inabilities in, uh, you know, doing things correctly. Well, those documents are available on the FEMA website, but I'm just flabbergasted that they aren't passing out the most recent documents. Like the uh, stuff from Sandy. Like the you stuff from Sandy, exactly. would have been much more, you know, and, you know, what, what I, I think some of the things that were different were really the cleanup method. A lot of times, uh, I think some of the things that were different were, uh, using pressure washing in, in order to remove, you know, gross contamination, even to remove mold, because in most situations it was a pretty cost-effective, uh, efficient method for doing it. Uh, there were certain situations where foam cleaning was, uh, you know, the ability of having a product that would foam and, and, and hang on surfaces. You know, it was very you know, effective for some yeah, Very, very effective, particularly on, uh, you know, wooden framing in crawl spaces and in, in basements. Floor but, joists. Yeah, floor joists and, 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 and things like that. Way less expensive than, uh, 
uh, other methods of, uh, you know, removing either fungal contamination or other types of contamination. And also, you know, a lot of times this pressure washing, you know, would remove uh, oils, uh, you know, diesel fuel, things like that, to get, you know, potentially get into the water. But I guess one of the challenges that you have is a lot of these houses probably don't have crawl spaces that have, you know, sufficient height. You know, what do you, you know, what do you do when you don't have sufficient height in that crawl space to go in and, uh, you know, put the membrane down? Is that a problem for you? It has been a problem. We've had to excavate crawl spaces. We have some that just don't have enough clearance, period. You know, one of our favorite methods for remediation has been for the past 12 years, ice blasting. Uh, and, and as you men know and our listeners know, you know, mold spores are hydrophobic. They don't like water. And when they're dry, they're airborne and you stir them up. So in the case here uh, of being able to clean things pressure washing-wise, and we've had people that had eight feet of, of mud in their basements. We've had people that had water come in the front door and carry the furniture out the back door. Um so being able to clean things when they're wet, because our molds are sticky when they're wet, I think that's a, a general consensus we can agree on, is easier to clean then. So pressure washing has been very, very common and very popular. I, and I agree with some of the foam cleaning techniques that we're able to suspend things, lift them up, and get them off. The problem is when things are dry, how do you remediate now? And a uh, you know, lack of proper environmental and engineering controls when things are dry and you've got fungal impact, then we get things that are airborne, that are floating around. How do we control those? Um, so you know, initial work, the pressure washing has worked well. And a lot of this has been kind of adapting as we go type of things because it varies from project to project. And again, some of these guys that have come in to help us, we're not familiar with, with what we've got going on. So I think there was some, some in-the-field uh, point-and-shoot work that was done um, and, you know, it left, it certainly leaves room for improvement. It certainly leaves room for our, our government agencies to learn what the left hand and the right hand are doing together so we can get documents that can be produced, that can learn from these experiences, that can help the next client that comes, or the next catastrophe that comes along. Chris, let me ask this as far as the government goes. Um, how has the response been, maybe you could separate between federal, state, and local, and has this... Um, government shutdown affected the response at all? It has. Our, our Governor Hickenlooper just made a comment yesterday on the news, um, and I'm, I'm quoting, so don't, don't, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> His comment was that the government are a bunch of knuckleheads because FEMA has been, not just FEMA, but the EPA has been significantly impacted by this shutdown, there's not enough people out there. And I'll tell you, our, our dear friend, Tracy, who you guys know, uh, I got an email from her, or text message from her yesterday. Um, she unfortunately was, was on vacation during the catastrophe, and I tried to reach her, and she was in Europe, and lots of things. She comes back, and she's being furloughed. They're not allowed to access their email. They can't access the emails they're getting right now. They were told not to access their work email. And this is the EPA. Yeah. who's had their hands tied, and they can't answer questions. Well, let's chat about it a little bit, because my position is I don't know that the EPA is in a position to knowledgeably answer questions. 
and you may be completely correct with that. Yeah. What is their experience in terms of doing it? I mean, you know, their experience is in reviewing labels and making things a whole lot more complicated, I think, in, in, in certain, well, in, in two cases, in duct cleaning and in mold remediation, then things need to be. You know, the gov government in its infinite wisdom kind of tells you how to do the project. And we're in the only industry where they do this. You know, they don't tell pest, they don't write a book and tell a pest control company how to apply a product. Uh, they don't suggest that the pest control company gets informed consent from the client before they use uh, well, that was I product is that. Yeah. in their house. Yeah. And you know, so I think in many situations that, you know, like Ronald Reagan said, the nine words, <laughs> they're the scariest <laughs> from the government, and I'm here to help. And yeah. Right, I, boys, run. Go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, 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 when you said that comment from Reagan, I said, run, Forrest, run. Right. <laughs> right. Hey. They're not here. I, I, I will tell you, though, I know from personal experience, because I, I, I was a little birdie that passed a note up the chain, and one of the big box contractor supply stores was selling a product they currently sell, but they were also in their rental department renting a ultrasonic fogger. Right. Telling people they could fog this product, which is in direct violation of FIFRA. And this is a case where the EPA stepped in, sent a gentle little letter saying that this is what's going to happen if you don't. And overnight, nationwide, that chain pulled that equipment from their shelves. That was a good step. That was a good step that was done. But I have to agree with you that things do get overcomplicated. We get too many cooks in the kitchen. We can't produce a good soup. Right. And we, we've got a... We're running short on time, and I really need to ask you a question before we go to um, before we go to our roundup, Chris. You have run into a lot of issues um, that were either ignored or problematic, and I know one in particular. I really want to make sure our listeners hear your take on this with respect to protecting your people and yourself when doing this type of work. You had a personal. Uh, incident that occurred when doing a remediation, not not on this particular, uh, after this flood, but in general, could you could you tell listeners a little bit about what happened to you and, and maybe, you know, because a lot of our listeners are restoration people and maybe help them recognize why, you know, people like myself try so hard to get them to use the appropriate engineering controls of PPE when they're doing this work. Well, I'll tell you, I, I shared a bit of this story at the convention and was just overwhelmed with individuals questioning me afterwards. What happened several years ago, and I, 20 years into the industry, uh, we're on a, a rural project. And in this project, I've got workers in full PPE in the crawl space on this elevated uh, manufactured home on a foundation with a skirt, an apron around the bottom of it. And I'm outside thinking I'm okay. We're pulling the skirt off, which is siding, which is insulated on the backside, as we're pulling it up, I'm thinking nothing of it. I'm outside. I should be fine. I'm not exposing myself. Well, in retrospect, we narrowed it down to the exact incident of exposure. As, as I'm pulling off this exterior apron siding, uh, a, a gust of wind blows up, and I get dosed in the face with some dust from the insulation. As I pulled that off, I saw tunneling and rodent feces in that. Didn't think much of it. Within a week, I had flu-like symptoms that lasted for four months, and I was 
virtually bedridden for four months. Doctors didn't know what to do. After multiple tests, multiple tests, we start backtracking. When did I get sick? Where did it start? And we ended up doing a very specific test for the hantavirus, which is contracted from the urine and feces of deer mice. Turns out that's when I was exposed and dosed. It took the doctors four months to find it because it masked itself hideously like a flu. And unless they test for that specific antigen, they don't find it. Well, once we found that I was in pretty sad shape physically, spent the next 18 months on steroids and antibiotics to reduce inflammation in my lungs and prevent infection, 50% of the people that contract the disease die from it. Hmm. My road to recovery 18 months later, the virus appeared to have run its course, but I was still stricken with extreme body pains and aches. Went to a rheumatologist, and after several tests, they diagnosed me with fibromyalgia as a byproduct of the stress my body went through with the hantavirus. The fibromyalgia is, is a, a, a disorder that it basically affects 90% of the people affected are women, 10% are men. And I'm one of the very unlucky few men who have acquired the disorder. There's no fix for it. There are lots of different treatments, but it's a very debilitating, uh, excruciatingly painful um, disorder to deal with. And, and the importance of, you know, the lesson to the story is PPE all the time. Never assume, you know, uh, always be aware and unassuming is, is my motto. And for me to assume that standing outside of this project, I was going to be fine, was almost a fatal mistake. It almost killed me. And did any of your guys contract the hantavirus? No, none of the guys got it. They were out wearing PPE. Okay. Okay. And we, 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 we practiced ditch and dawn of our, of our equipment properly, and no one else was impacted like I was. Wow. Well, I appreciate you uh, telling that story for our listeners. Hey, Chris, can you hang in there an extra 10 minutes? We want to go to the roundup. I can do that. Great. Thanks. Let's go to the roundup, Jess. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. Jess, let's bring in the good doctor. Hello, Dieter. Do we have you? Wow, that sounds better than the last time. Maybe we fixed up the, <laughs> my cue. There you go, Dieter. So what do you think, Dieter? I know you've got to have a couple good comments on this one. Well, I have a bunch of comments, and uh, Chris very wisely mentioned them, but I think a lot of things for him are so natural that he thinks that everybody ought to know that. And I made a couple of uh, 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 notices over here. Uh, first of all, everybody thinks there's never, ever going to be a flood in my house unless you are, you know, 10 feet below the sea level, and there's a little wave coming in. I live in Carnegie, which is a suburb some uh, four miles uh, away from Pittsburgh, 
and we had a flood over here. I think it's now six or seven years ago. I lost a ton of money in it because a building that I owned got flooded with bunch and bunch of dirt. And we looked over it. Nobody was alive in Carnegie uh, who knew that there was such a thing before. Well, it was 100 years ago. So the first person should have been 105 years old or something like that. Literally, the whole downtown business area was wiped out. So it might be a good idea to think about it ahead. Now, where I live in Carnegie, if if I get a wet basement, <laughs> Pittsburgh is gone. I'm like 400 feet above it. Anyway, the next one is he talked about drying, and he said, guys, and I underlined here, think you are dry. Don't do that. Listen to your moisture meter. Don't think, it oh, looks pretty good to me. When this flood was here in Carnegie, I was running around. I think I was the only one who had a moisture meter. And I said, guys, leave that open. But there was a little old lady who said, I'm sick and tired of this kitchen. That was a week later after they cleaned up. And they ripped out the drywall and the insulation, which I recommended. And I said, I want this all covered up. And I said, don't do it now. Well, they didn't listen, and then they had to do it again. Uh, Chris also mentioned, if you put a nice fan into a room and you think you are drying it, it's not going to work. <laughs> again, it's one of those things. People think it's going to work. I know it. Joe knows it. Chris knows it. You've got to get the, uh, the uh, uh, moisture-laden air out of there. My uh, um, uh, hint is, Think of your clothes dryer. Is there a fan in there? Yes. Where does the fan go? Into your house or out of the house? By and large, out of the house. Unless you are in January in uh, Alaska and then you like to vent it inside. Every little bit of moisture you can get inside is okay. The other thing is with the crawl spaces. And that is really a, a question. It, it goes together with another uh, question uh, and, and, and comment that Cliff made. The EPA can't give us a one-size-fits-all. We just learned that the crawl space in Denver is somewhat different than the one in South Carolina or anywhere in between. And um, so I, I, I think that is a good uh, a question. I said, hey, we need guidelines. And if you ask me about crawl spaces, make them a little bit higher. Don't call it a crawl space. Call it a... Uh, a storage area, you can go into it like I go into my garage and hell with it. But it will cost a little bit more. The other thing I always say, uh, use diluted bleach. Bleach is already diluted. Just spray the stuff on there and hit it. <laughs> <laughs> and don't, don't put more water on it. I guarantee you it will work. I have no doubt about it. And here's the other thing. Uh, Joe and I taught a course, my God, that's six, seven, eight years ago by now. And there is that special thing in the Denver, in the Colorado area, with that bed night. I, I, I know basically, quote, all houses stand on stilts, be it metal or something like this, to go to the bedrock. How good, how bad is that bed night? Does it, absorb, does it drain away water or does it hold it? Is it like clay or something like this? And now I shut up. Good question, Peter. What is that like there, Chris? Is it sort of like a clay? Well, they buried the bed night is a clay. 
Okay. Um, you know, we've got we've got the bentonite and the granite. So the, the ideal method is to drill helical piers down to set your caissons on off of bedrock so that when we get any subsidence or movement, the house is supported on those helical piers which are hitting the bedrock, which is not likely to move. How deep is that approximately? Is it 5, 10, 20? They vary down to wherever the bedrock's at. We've got some that'll go 60 feet down. Oh, my God. <laughs> that, that's the job. Anyway, sorry I interrupted. Uh, hey, Chris, anything? Um, well, I've got a follow-up, Chris, for the, for the roundup. If, you know, um, what other types of issues do you feel are being ignored during this cleanup that if you, you know, had a magic wand and can wave it, would not be ignored? Wow. That's a loaded question, Joe. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I wish that, you know, if I could wave, wave, wave a magic wand, the flood never would have happened. Um, it has happened. What would I wish could be different now? Uh, I wish that my clients, uh, or clients that even aren't mine, I wish that, that the impact that homeowners uh, and business owners were not being exposed to the environmental risks they are now post-flood. And what about with respect to the people that did the remediation? What do you wish they had known to do better? And not, not with respect to the drying, but other things. Did you have a lot of problems with oils in the water, with uh, asbestos-containing materials, with lead-based paint, um, with all the, any of the other myriad of uh, environmental issues that can be exacerbated by flooding? Well, the state was really good about suspending Reg 8, which is our regulation for ACM. Uh, the state said that uh, during this moratorium on that, that any flood-impacted materials could be disposed of, removed and disposed of, and were not subject to Reg 8. Hmm. So they did a good, they, good job of that. The bad job is, as, as uh, FEMA has said, and EPA has even said, uh, we've got landfills full of asbestos and lead right now. That, that weren't for um, uh, uh, transfer stations for the trash companies because Boulder, uh, in addition to several other counties and cities, were allowing people to dump their debris at curbside and it'd be picked up. Uh, one of the man waste management companies actually was providing dumpsters in parking lots for people to use, and they were becoming quickly overloaded and being scattered in the parking lots. They soon just said, hey, we'll do curbside pickup, but none of that stuff is bagged and tagged regulated, tracked, um, and the bigger issue is what is where and who's being exposed to it right now. Did you see, do you have concerns with respect to, to contractors using the same equipment over and over without maybe properly decontaminating it or uh, with maybe bringing problems from one building into another or from one residence into another? I, I do, and based on the work that I do with company sensitive clients, we have to be keenly aware that our equipment is decontaminated when we go from one project to the next. Cat dander can be a problem for people. Um, how do you know that that equipment wasn't used in a house that was growing weed or that was a meth lab or had ACM stirred up that got pulled into the equipment, you go to the next house and you blow it. So I think a lot of questions about that, and I answered a lot of questions. I had a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails, a lot of texts asking me those questions. And I got to do a real quick caveat to that, that we had instances where there, there were roofing contractors on a Monday, and by Wednesday they were flood contractors. Yeah. yeah that's had always... no clue 
no clue what they were doing. But when they're charging $4,000 a piece to dry down crawl spaces with a bunch of fans that are blowing into the house, they're doing it all day long. Yeah. Now, with, with respect to that and, and, and the contractors coming in, I, I'm just curious. You deal with a lot of chemically sensitive people, and you had mentioned using the botanicals on some of your projects. Do you, in your experience, does your clientele um, respond better to the use of those than to some of the other products out there? Because, I mean, aren't they a chemical too? Well, they are. They're class four EPA uh, 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 designation, so they don't require any PPE. Uh, I do tell all my clients. I tell all my clients the same thing. I said mold spores are like a glass ball. There's some slime on the outside of the glass ball to protect that glass ball, which can be bad. But a lot of the gobbledygook, the bad stuff, the proteins, the glucan, cellulose structure, those things, uh, protease, they're contained inside that glass ball. Well, when we treat them with a the biocide, we shatter the glass ball. So no longer can I sample for it, short of PCR, which is extremely expensive. Um, I can't, I can't do a typical microscopy to identify what was there. I get fragments, but I've now spilled all the guts from that glass ball everywhere. So we still have to clean it up. Simply treating, and that's part of the, the, the standards and guidelines, are source removal. Okay, so um, the problem yeah. is more that they didn't do the source Correct. removal. Correct. But they used the chemicals. Okay. What about uh, with respect to using the botanicals? Do they shatter that glass ball like you were talking about, or is that not a problem in there? I believe it's the same end product that we still have to clean up what's there. And my recommendation to clients is we'll use it for a cleaning, but we still rinse when we're done. It allows us to get in nooks and crannies and interstitial voids that we couldn't get to as opposed to tearing the framing apart. So, you know, the stuff that gets trapped in there that's broken up, you know, where our plates and framing meet, you know, we talk about how to address that. Uh, but we use it more as a suppressant and as an attack for pathogens and a cat three loss. Gotcha, gotcha. Chris, before we go, anything that we missed that you'd like to add, uh, anything that uh, you'd make, like to get out to the listeners with respect to, you know, the, the difficult situation uh, you and your neighbors are facing out there in Colorado? Well, you know, according to the song you guys played, which is very appropriate, we are tough, and we do bounce back. But, you know, I would just encourage everyone to just be kind to your neighbor, no matter where you're at, because you never know how their day's going or where they've been. And, you know, a lot of the folks I'm dealing with now are just in such an emotional state of flux that it's just even that much more important to be kind, be sensitive, and just be aware. Well, thank you for that, Chris. Thanks for joining us. It's been a really good show, very interesting topic, and uh, I'm really glad you brought it to my attention and that we followed up with you and had you on the show. It's been uh, been a lot of fun. I look forward to talking to you again soon. All right, guys. Take care. Have a great day. All right. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Chris Watson. A very interesting show there, Z-Man. Yeah, it was good. I, I, I think that a lot of people were just unaware of the differences uh, and the unique characteristics of flood cleanup in, in Colorado. Yeah, I mean, a lot of attention was brought on the differences in New York, but then this one kind of came and went without the type of attention that I think it deserved. And uh, we'll maybe follow up again. Uh, I know we've got other friends out that way, Carl Grimes and others, and maybe we'll bring them on and uh, see how it goes in a month or so. But anyway, this is Radio Joe uh, saying thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man. Yeah.
Good to, good Back to together work. in the same room. I love it. Uh, of course, to our guest, Chris Watson. Of course, to our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. To Jessica Lawson for holding down the fort back there for me. Great job on the engineering again today. Most importantly, to our growing group of loyal listeners. Thank you all. Please come back and join us next Friday for the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 